Well, our text this week is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. If you could please turn there now. Now, René Descartes was a very influential French gentleman who lived from 1596 to 1650. And he was a philosopher, a mathematician, and a writer. And he has been dubbed the father of modern philosophy. And a lot of subsequent Western philosophy is as a response to his writings, which are studied closely right up till today. And he also had an influence in mathematics. The uh, Cartesian coordinate system was named after him, and he is credited as the father of analytical geometry, whatever that may be. Yes, yes, it's a G, whiz. Sorry, you, you can't tell, but Colin's making rude signs at me. Now, Descartes was also one of the key figures in the scientific revolution, and he's been described as an example of genius. Well, he's obviously quite a fellow. He's probably best known for the philosophical statement, cogito ergo sum, which in English is, I think, therefore I am. Yes, okay. And the simple meaning of the phrase is that someone wondering whether or not they exist, um, is in itself proof that something in I exists to do the thinking. Well, this phrase has become actually a fundamental element of Western philosophy, as it was perceived to form a foundation of all knowledge. And because other knowledge could be a figment of imagination, deception or mistake, the very act of doubting one's existence serves to some people as a proof of the reality of one's existence, or at least one's thought. You might have heard this phrase before, and perhaps you haven't. Perhaps philosophy seems like the practice of slightly strange intellectuals and is of no interest to you. However, the fact is that this idea, that thinking is above all other things, lies at the very root of our education system that we went through, as well as the one that is forming the minds of our children. We seek thought. We respect thought. And actually, in many ways, we worship it. However, what does Scripture say about it? Let's read our text for today then, Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanliness with greediness. May God's word speak to us today. It seems to me that statements like the futility of the mind contrasts very strongly with I think, therefore I am, which places thought on such a high pedestal. While Paul's readers had no knowledge of Descartes since he would live far in their future, let's think about what we've read in its historical context. Well, the Greeks were no longer the rulers of Israel, but their language was still the most commonest spoken, and this very high regard that they had for intellectual matters persisted. So, to read that the use of the mind was futile, which means answering no useful end, it's vain or worthless, would have been a very provocative idea. And as with many things, although a great deal of time has passed since then, not a great deal has changed, 
So we still hold intellectualism ourselves in great esteem. What is Paul proposing then? Should we take all the kids out of school and burn all of our books? No, of course not. To see what he is saying, let's have a look at the scripture a bit more carefully. Well, to start off with, this verse marks a change in topic. We're going to see that as we go along, um, Paul uses this picture of walking a total of five times in the book of Ephesians. And we've just received comprehensive instruction on the first instance, which has been walking in unity. And here we're going to move into walking in holiness. And this might seem to be a natural progression because believers should be both unified and holy. But if we think about it, holiness is not necessarily a normal human consequence of unity. I was watching um, Super Rugby last night. A rugby team may work very well in union, but I suspect that they mostly won't be very holy. So, there must be some added dimension or an external force that will encourage the development of this attribute. And it's not a great feat of deduction to see that this must be the influence of God. And yet, as we encourage that, and yet as we think about that encouragement to walk, and walking is a very deliberate and physical act, we can tell that holiness is intended to flow from the Lord and us working together. So let's see what Paul has to teach us about walking in holiness. Well, obviously the first thing he has to show us is the wrong way, which is living like the Gentiles. Now, of course Paul isn't making some kind of attack on a specific racial group, but he's just holding the Gentiles up as the most immediate symbol of those who live without any sort of relationship with the Lord. Although the Jews were often disobedient and and legalistic in the way they related to God, at least they knew who he was. And this meant for the purposes of his illustration, they weren't a good example, but the Gentiles were, and they were close to home. Because bear in mind that some of the first readers of this letter were Gentiles. That's how they'd been raised. What do you think they would have thought when they were reading these words? Well, Some would have immediately have got the point, but I'm sure that others would have felt a bit offended to hear the main part of their lives being described as futile. We may sympathise with them, but there is a lesson here. I think many Christians come to faith a little bit later in life or at least after their formative years, so for the most part their self-image is already set and decided. And there are a lot of things about that self-image they will not sit sit well with life as a believer. But because they are part of our fundamental makeup, they they aren't that easy to change. They stay with us. However, we can't be wasting time holding on to what we were. We often need to be reminded that what we were has been replaced by something new and wonderful that must change the way we live. And we've heard this explained not long ago in this very same book. We read just a little while ago in Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. What we were is gone. We are something brand new. We're so used to being unbelievers and to the influence of the world that we're continuously pulled back towards that way of life. So the most likely thing 
that we will continue to do after we come to Christ is be what we were before. Don't go down that road we're being cautioned here. It is a complete waste of time. It is futile. Does anybody here claim to remember any high school geometry? Can anyone tell me what the notable thing about a point is? Exactly. A point has no size. Well, that's a thing, isn't it? (laughs) A point is, by definition, zero in magnitude in all directions. It takes up no space at all. Now, I've heard of a point being merely an idea, not an object at all. And it has to be that way in mathematics because if it had any size, then it would actually mess up all of the, all the calculations. So that's why a point has no size. What's my point? <laughs> I have no size. <laughs> that's not true. Now, I've spoken lots and lots about the various vacations, Okay. Justification is a point. The point at which we are saved by grace instantaneously and our sins forgiven. At that moment, we are made completely new in Christ. It takes no time at all. But as amazing as that is, amazing as that new creation, that instantaneous creation is, it isn't the end of God's work in us. Because from then on, we must live in Christ, that walk, that deliberate walk of sanctification that Paul is speaking about here. Our hearts and our minds and our actions must be opened up to reflect what is taking place in our spirits. And this change in nature will be made throughout our lives as we work with the Holy Spirit in prayer and study of God's inspired scriptures to become outwardly what God has made inwardly. We are made holy by Jesus' death and we are intended to live in holiness as a result. But if, however, we just rely on our minds and not the Lord, then what are we going to achieve? Are the fruits of our work going to please him? Will holiness be demonstrated? No, because it will just be motivated by flesh and not spirit. And this is why Paul uses this strong word, futile. The results of walking in the mind alone will only be death and separation from God. Anything that was built by the mind will be left behind when we die and so they are really useless in God's eternal plan. And all of this contrasts very strongly with the I think, therefore I am model of the world. Now so far I've referred to Paul having written this or said that a number of times. But the authority of this instruction is a lot more profound because note how this text begins. It says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. This walk in holiness is so important that there should be absolutely no confusion as to whether this is just one of Paul's good ideas or it is God's will. Now I I generally use the New King James Version which is what we've got up here. And this passage is rendered a little bit differently in some others. So let me read a few. New American Standard Bible. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. The Amplified Bible. So this I say and solemnly testify in the name of the Lord 
as in his presence. And Wooster, you might not have heard of, but um, he's written a very helpful, um, I'm just trying to think of the right word, understandable version of the New Testament. This, therefore, I am saying and solemnly declaring in the Lord. Do you see the statement is a joint one? Paul is standing and speaking together with Christ. And what we read is intended to be understood as direct instruction from Jesus himself. There's no confusion with human thoughts. And since it is so, we have no excuse to be obeying. You know, I've often read the account of Adam and Eve walking with God and physically talking to him and just wishing so much that I could do the same. Imagine being able to go and ask God for his advice and hearing it directly. How much clearer would that make everything? It would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Well, this is in effect what we're seeing right here. God is speaking directly and unmistakably to us and so we should be foolish not to listen. Okay. We mustn't walk like we used to when we were unbelievers, hostile to God and pursuing selfish and sinful gratifications. No. We were saved to live far better lives than to carry on in that way. Yes, we still live in a sinful and fallen world, but Jesus has taken its weight away from us forever. We are called to rise above its nature of moral depravity and spiritual decay to be shining lights of the glory of God. And we run with hope towards the joyful, ecstatic certainty of life eternal with God. What a gift. What a God. Why, oh why, would we choose to carry on living like we used to? Yeah, we do. I know I do. To by my great shame. Something happens every day. I do something that I know I shouldn't do. And I suspect that I'm not alone. It isn't easy, this work of sanctification, but great works of transformation seldom are. When we bought our home nine years ago, it had been very radically modified. When it was originally built, it was a Spanish bungalow. But a previous owner who was a builder had widened the house by two meters and then stuck another story on top. And all the major structural work had been done on the inside, but particularly the upstairs was left unfinished. And okay, the owner before us had done a few things before we came along, but there was such a lot left to do. You know, I think we must have been a bit dazed by our move here from Zimbabwe to take that project on so easily. And sometimes it seems endless, but we've persevered and bit by bit things have moved forward and we're just starting to see what it might be like when it's finished and my aim is just to do one thing every day just one thing because I know that if I do if I do that one thing then I will definitely see progress there will be something concrete at the end of the day that I can see and touch even if it's very small and that both encourages me to carry on and it lightens the total burden in a very real way. And I think that that is a good me metaphor for our sanctification. Because 
When we come to Christ, we are structurally a mess. We can see it and God can see it in us. But bit by bit, if we do just one thing every day, then we will certainly move towards that goal of being like Jesus, of becoming more and more holy. But if we despair and give up, if we persist in futile thinking which achieves nothing, then we will definitely fail. I think the good choice is very obvious. Will you commit with me to do that one real thing every day, moving steadily away from futile thought towards holiness? So that we might be on guard for signs of it in ourselves and know it when we see others, what might be some of the danger signs of futile thinking? Of course, they're listed here, started in verse 18, and the first of these is darkened understanding. To say it this way infers that their understanding has been changed in some way from its normal state. If something has been darkened, then it is reasonable to suppose that previously it must have been light. And if this is linked, as it is here, with fallen and sinful humans, then we can deduce that the normal and proper state that God intended for mankind's understanding was light. And this shouldn't be, under, this shouldn't be difficult to, to see because we know that God is, God is light as well himself. And the Greek word that's used for darkened it literally means to become dark or covered with darkness. And the way that it's used tells us that this process comes from inside, it's not an, uh, from, sorry, from outside, it's not an inside thing. And although it was previously completed, it has present results. What that means is that somehow the mind was darkened by somebody else. It happened a while back, but it still affects us today. Who is doing the darkening? Well, Paul tells us elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. The God of this age has blinded. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan, here identified as the God of this age, is acting to conceal the truth and light of the gospel in unbelievers' minds. That's absolutely outrageous, isn't it? It's horrible. Do we agree that it is outrageous? Yes. Good. Then there are some practical things we can do. We must get on our knees and pray that the Lord would open unbelievers' eyes to the light of the gospel. We must tell everyone that we can about the truth. And we must walk in holiness, as Paul is here saying, as an example of what light and life are intended to be by God. Because we were not saved merely to be observers or critics of those who are not. Scripture shows us that we are clearly and specifically called to get involved. Believers are not exempt from the effects of darkening either. They're just affected in a different way. Obviously, since we are already saved, blinding us to the gospel will have no effect. The saving light of Christ cannot be removed from our spirits. That work is complete. However, the same can't be said of our daily walk outside the bushel, so to speak. 
the way that we display holiness to the world around us. Because sadly, that life can be obscured if we do not guard it. And there are three ways that this can happen. Firstly, if we are not careful about what we see, what we read and what we say, we can allow the darkness of the world to creep over our light like a nasty mould so that its glow becomes dim and hard to see. Secondly, we could choose to hide it because of fear. What will people think of my light? Will I be stupid, look stupid? I don't want to be persecuted. I want to be in with the popular crowd. And there's lots of reasons like that, aren't there? And lastly and saddest of all, we can deliberately just close the curtains, choosing to give up on God and his call in our lives because of some disappointment and walking away from the church. So how can we guard against these? Well, the first is obvious. Deal with creeping darkness like this. Don't let garbage in and don't let garbage out. Guard your eyes and your tongue. And we can polish the glass of the lamp if it has become dirty. And we do this when we keep a clean slate with the Lord. Confess sin as it is brought to our attention by the Holy Spirit. And talk to the Lord regularly in prayer. What about fear? I think a good example of the fear is the cold. And I don't mean the sneezing cold, I mean the temperature. If we don't dress up warmly and feed that fire, we may freeze. Friends, there's something very concrete we can do about the fear of men. It has to do with knowledge, which is both a warm jacket and the fuel for that fire that we need. When we are challenged or persecuted and our knowledge of Scripture is thin and weak and our theology is poor, then we're going to be in for a hiding and our fears will be justified because we really will look foolish. So what should we do? Study God's Word. Study God's Word. Study God's Word. It is the sword of the Spirit, a sharp sword that we can use to defend ourselves and to hold our ground. And as to our final problem, drawing those curtains, if I have a clean heart before God, His Word is in my mind and in my heart, and in my hand is a sword, do you think that I will ever need to or choose to walk away? No. The answers to our first two dangers are also the certain cure for the third. None of these things are rocket science. None of them are physically difficult. But none of us can put our hands on our hearts and say that we do them as well as we might. You know, we often look to our pastors and wish that we were as good a Christian as they were. So knowledgeable, so spiritual. Here's the thing though, although it is true that pastors are specially given to the church and have particular gifts for that work, I believe that the principal reason for their knowledge and spirituality being so different to many in the congregation is very simple. It is this, thorough sermon preparation in particular regularly immerses them deeply into scripture. And I do not believe that this depth of immersion is intended to be extraordinary and reserved for the pastor. 
actually, it should be normal for every single believer. However, it's become far too comfortable to rely on being spoon-fed. This is how we do church in the Western world. We come week by week to the service and look only to the sermon for spiritual food. And afterwards we might say, Thanks, Pastor. That was a really great message. It spoke to me. But your own spirit may be speaking to you too. Words of longing and hunger, if you will listen. If you think it's okay to starve yourself, well, just try going without physical food for a day or two and let those stomach pains remind you that your spirit is just as hungry. Let each and every one of us commit to not let a day go by without feasting on God's word. The next sign of futile thinking is alienation from God. And the Greek word that's used for alienation, it talks about estrangement, a rupture of a relationship that used to exist because of some hostility that has arisen. And that, of course, is exactly what we know to have happened in the Garden of Eden. Humans became alienated from the Lord because of sin. But God graciously didn't leave it there. He made a way for complete reconciliation through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And yet, so many people choose to ignore this great gift and avoid any contact or reference to God. They seem, in fact, to want to be alienated, which, when you look at it from a believer's perspective, is confusing. Why would they choose to be that way? Scripture tells us that there is no excuse. This is something that they chose. If we read Romans 1, verses 18 to 21, it echoes and amplifies our current passage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the way things are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. God, if you look for him, is seen everywhere in his creation. But if you choose, as our text says, to be ignorant and blind of heart, then you will continue to be alienated from him. And the Greek word that's used talks about an ignorance that isn't just of the intellect, just doesn't come from the head. It denotes an ignorance of divine things, a want of knowledge that is inexcusable and involves moral blindness. It's much more than not knowing. It's seeing something quite obvious and then deliberately turning away and refusing to take it in and acknowledge it. What do you think will happen if we continue to do that? We constantly look at something and then turn away. Our text speaks of blindness of the heart. 
And some translations use the word hardening instead of blindness. And I think this is a lot more descriptive because the Greek word that they used means to harden or render insensitive. And it was used literally at the time to discover the covering of a body part with a a callus or a thick layer of skin. I think that's a very helpful picture because all of us have calluses of one kind or another and we know how they come about. They come from something rubbing or working on the skin on and on and gets hard and then we don't notice it anymore. So what might happen spiritually if one saw something that reminded them of God and then deliberately looked away and then did that over and over and over again? I guess the first few times would be difficult, but as that callus developed, it would become less and less so to the point where God and the things of God, well, they just wouldn't matter at all. And I think if we look at many unbelievers' lives, we can very clearly see that hardness displayed. They become calloused and indifferent to both the influence of God and the remorse and regret that should follow sin. This is tragic. We were intended to rejoice in God. And that is why when we see the sunset or snow-capped mountains or some majestic vista from a high place, we feel exhilarated and joyful and we acknowledge his work. As believers, we know that we have a God of glory and we see that glory reflected in his creation and it moves us. Since we are his creation made in his image, we were also intended to be holy so that sin would always grate on us. But when we persist in willful ignorance and blindness, the spiritual callous that forms eases the slide into that state that Paul describes in verse 19, which is our third and final sign of, of darkening, and that is surrender. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanliness with greediness. No one becomes a great sinner all at once. At first we regard sin with our horror and our conscience pricks us powerfully when we slip, but when we continue to sin, there comes a time when we lose all sensation and can do the very most shameful things without any feeling at all. Our conscience is petrified, it is hardened, it is useless, will offer no resistance to any act, however shameful. And the only end that such a person can look forward to without the intervention of the Holy Spirit is an eternity in hell. When God watches that, I think he must be so angry, but I think he must also be so sad because he has made a way for us. This phrase, having given themselves over, is translated from just one word. It's aselgia. And it doesn't mean that I've lent you something and I want it back in the same condition or that here's something, you can use it, but I'll be watching. It means take this and use it in any way that you want. I don't care. It shows that those who are so hardened have just completely handed themselves over to that way of life. And the transaction has been made voluntarily. Nobody forced them to do it. Callousness 
and lack of feeling leads to a life where any amount of sin and debauchery does not matter at all. And when we read this word lewdness, we should know that what Paul meant was the most extreme sexual immorality of uninhibited and unabashed lasciviousness. It refers to the kind of debauchery and abandonment that characterizes a lot of our modern society. And it's often flaunted almost as a badge of distinction. Now, <laughs> we might not see much of it in Wanganui, but I assure you that it's out there. If you have Sky TV, I encourage you to flick onto e-channel now and again and just have a look at some of the, uh, the reality programs there if you don't think that this kind of behavior rules in many parts of the world. And the Greeks saw the Selgia as a problem. They had a, a couple of definitions. They said it describes a disposition of soul that resents all discipline. And we see that, don't we? We see people who refuse, who just don't feel that they should be bound by any kind of rules at all. And as a spirit that acknowledges no restraints and dares whatever its caprice and wanton insolence may suggest. I'll do what I want, whenever I want. And we see evidence of this nearly every day. How often do we turn on the news to see some absolutely mind-bogglingly dreadful crime exposed there? How could they do such a thing? What were they thinking? How could they sink so low? Now, one commentator explained this behaviour like this. He says, the bad man usually tries to hide his sin. They have enough respect for common decency not to, be, not to wish to be found out. But the man who has a salgia in his soul does not care how much he shocks public opinion so long as he can gratify his own desires. The man who is guilty of a salgia is lost to decency and to shame. He does not care who sees his sin. It is not that he arrogantly and proudly flaunts it. It is simply so that he can publicly do the most shameless things because he has ceased to care for decency at all. With what we have read today, Paul has explained just how that man, that man who is beyond bad, got there through darkening, alienation, blindness, hardening and surrender. And the fruit of this process isn't just personal. Because the text says to work all uncleanliness. And it literally means just that, to work. Uncleanliness has become a business enterprise. And that too we can readily see in our television and movie screens and magazines and on the internet. It is all around us. Okay. We can see this mess and filth around. But we might be asking the question, what does it have to do with me? Well, I've got four suggestions to make. I think the first point is very obvious. Anything that darkens the mind is wrong. Don't go there. The first step may seem very small, but the slope thereafter is steep and very slippery, and the fall will be disastrous. All believers in Christ are a new creation and they ought to live that way in holiness. Secondly, when we see this, well, we know who to pray for. 
Have you spotted any of this behavior around you recently? I'd be very surprised if you hadn't. And there are a lot of things that we can do when we are exposed to unpleasant behavior. One of the things we can do is we can confront it. I'm not too sure about this. Some have the ability to pull this off, but my personal experience is that it can be a jolly good way to get into a very pointless shouting match. After all, someone who is completely indifferent to the concept of morality is unlikely to engage in a reasoned conversation (laughs) or to repent in sackcloth and ashes. Well, we could also run and hide from it. And I think that's something that believers often do. But what good will that do us or those who are in sin? We can and we should pray because God hears and acts. He has the power to do amazing things. And who knows, we may have a part in bringing someone quite unlikely to Christ, a great testimony to God for the world to see. We shouldn't expect newspaper headlines for ourselves in that case because it is the Lord who accomplishes change. Our part is to be obedient and pray. The third thing we can learn is that there are times when we may doubt our own salvation because persistent sin or hard times can drag us down and make us uncertain. Am I really a Christian? Does God really hear me? Is he really working things for my good? Well, we've seen some very clear signs today of the spiritual state of the unbeliever. So, if we can see inside ourselves some light, as evidenced by a healthy fear of God, a desire to share him with others, and real regret for sin that stimulates repentance and the desire to avoid it, then we can have deep assurance of our own salvation because we will obviously not find these holy things within the sort of people that Paul has been talking about. The last thing we can do is that we can watch for erosion of these values in ourselves and others. Now you might recall a previous illustration of how a powerful fish can be subdued by leading it away from shelter so slowly that it doesn't realise that its security is gone and how that that can be likened to the way Satan leads us bit by bit into sin. I think that just knowing what that process looks like is a large part of the battle won, because when we see it, we will know that it is time to stand firm, to refuse to go any further. And this is a gift that isn't just for ourselves, but for the body of the church, for our fellow believers as well. We can look out, each other. We can be accountable and move forward together in the work of sanctification. The Lord didn't just put us together in this place to make a bigger noise when we sing. He had some much more important and useful matters of spiritual cooperation in mind. So, how will you walk when you leave here today? As one of God's new creations or as one of the Gentiles? I hope and pray that it will be the first and we will learn more about the second in the next sermon. Let us pray. Father, thank you 
for the gift of Jesus. That He has taken us away from this place of futile thinking. That You have given us work, Lord, that is real and that has eternal consequences. Father, I pray that You would Help us to walk in a way that keeps us focused on that future, on the great hope that you have bought for us at such a price. That we would keep our hands to the handle of the plough, Lord. That we would look out for signs of darkening and alienation and for that slide, Lord, that slow slide. And that we would be able to Stop it in ourselves and help others not to do the same. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.